Welcome to the oh, Show. Today, our guest, Mike Sigler. So, Mike, were, were you born, so you weren't born in New York, right? I was not. I was born in a little town called Booton, New Jersey, which is down near uh, Sparta, New Jersey, where I grew up. So it was about uh, you know, 20 minutes away. Was it like uh, near the city, New Jersey, like in, like near the, the borders of New York and New Jersey? Was it more central? No, it's northern New York, where Taylor Ham is actually Taylor Ham and not pork roll. It's a, uh, where you, you root for the giants, uh, basically. So um, yeah, Sussex County is where Sparta is. Morris County, I think, is Booton. Um, so yeah, all about forty-five minutes out of New York City. Uh, how how did you get your start out in New York? And so I was working in Boston as a writer and um, got offered my first on-air television job in upstate New York. So went to Elmira, worked for uh, WENY TV for about a year. Went up to Syracuse to work there for a few years, went back to Elmira and worked for WETM as a reporter anchor until I decided to uh, run for New York State Assembly, which I lost in 2002. But I lived in Ithaca and then moved to Lansing and ran for county legislature and have won that, that, uh, won that race the first time, lost it, I think, the second time, then won it the third time and won it the fourth time. Uh, super interesting. So how, how did you get your start on the pilot? Like, what was your military career like? Oh, I wasn't in the military at all. Uh, oh, my pilot's license? Oh, yeah, yeah. I, no, what were you asking about? I'm sorry, Tom. How did you get your pilot's license? Yeah, no, I wasn't in the military. I um, I had always wanted to fly. I tried to get into, um, I applied for the military when I was like 18. They were not going to take me on as a pilot at that point. My eyes were bad and um, I think for the one branch I think the other branch my grades weren't good enough I forget but uh, um, so didn't go that route decided to go into journalism instead but then when I was about 45 I uh, was going through some life things and said you know I, I really want to invest my time in that it's something I always wanted to do East Hill Flying Club is right here in uh, you know it's in Lansing New York at the airport but uh, you know, if it could too we would put that name on it as well you can go up there and take lessons. I started doing that. And about two years later, I, I had my pilot's license. I had to go for so check rides and all that. So. How many hours worth of lessons do you need to become a pilot and get a license? So they tell you the minimum, I think, is like 40. Um, yeah, nobody does it in 40, really. Um, unless unless your, your mom or dad is a pilot and you're flying with them a lot and you, you kind of get the get, you know, those early lessons. Uh, 40 is pretty tough. Most people, I think, do it in about 65 on average. Um, the problem, not the problem, um, it takes a little longer if you're doing it kind of piecemeal like I did. So it took me about 107 hours. But um, that was because I stretched it out over two years. You know, if you're going to go get your private pilots, I would suggest you try to do it as quickly almost as possible. You really want to pack it into uh, the shortest period of time possible so you don't lose anything while you're sitting on the ground. In your pilot career, like, what's the longest flight you've ever done? So the longest flight I've done was actually out to Hampton, uh, New Hampshire. So I don't make any money doing this. It's not like I wouldn't mind it being a career, but uh, it's not one for me. But um, so it's all out of pocket. But I flew from Ithaca and I flew out to Hampton, New Hampshire, which is right on the coast, which is about it was about three hours and a nice little airport. Great little diner there. I flew out because Sarah was out there with the girls. My wife was out there with the girls. And 
I met them. They picked me up. We went to the beach for the day. I stayed overnight, and then I took off in the morning and flew back to Ithaca. So what would amount to about an eight-hour drive was only like a little, like a two-and-a-half to three-hour flight. So it was kind of neat. Have you ever done any crazy barrel rolls or any cool flight moves or anything like that? I am not approved to do that. And I'm never in a plane that can actually do that. Um, but I saw a guy in Cortland doing that. And he apparently teaches lessons. So I'm going to go check that out. But um, yeah. I have some friends that do those kind of things. You need a special plane and you actually um, you need a sign off to do uh, acrobatics. So. Yeah. What's the steering wheel like? like is it like a car steering wheel or? No, um, I mean, I guess it looks similar. It's a yoke, so it looks kind of like this. And um, then you, you know, you have your hands there. The older time ones are are more like a circle. They're like, like kind of an odd egg, like an egg that's been sat on the table too long. But um, the difference is in a steering, like in a car, when you go a certain direction, you know, it's you're putting force on the wheel, which is making you go a certain direction. Whereas in an aircraft you have what's called ailerons on the wing and, and they are, are tilting you this way or that way and they're forcing a lift in a, in a different direction. So it's those ailerons that are making you turn. And then you have a rudder in the back which you're using your feet on and that's kind of keeping the plane, um, you know, it's keeping the tail from, from going into a skid or something like that. You, you're trying to keep the plane um, straight so it's comfortable to fly in too. And that, it's called coordinated flight. So that's what you're trying to do. Yeah, would you recommend the film Airplane as an educational film for flight students? Um, maybe not as educational, but you know, certainly some of the lines in there you can certainly use and have been uh, in many flight things. So. It's a recommend, yeah, recommended when you have a flight into chaos that you just go and use a, a floaty to take over. <laughs> exactly, right? Just, yeah, you, you watch this. Actually, the, the, some of the, the big planes like that now really do kind of fly themselves. Um, you know, the key part is the landing and the takeoff. But, you know, when you're in the air, if you have a good, um, if you have a good autopilot, it'll, it'll hold your altitude. It'll hold your, your track. I mean, it'll, it does quite a bit for you, especially with the new planes. Now they've, they've come out with a plane that will actually land itself. Um, I don't know if that's ever going to be in, in high use for people. Um, maybe uh, one day, I mean, you're having autonomous cars, and I never thought that was probably going to happen, but pretty soon autonomous planes, right? You, you've got drones that are already capable of doing that, so it's not out of the question. Yeah. So you also had a journalist career? Uh, I did. Um, yeah, I started out um, when I went to college. I went to Northeastern in Boston. I went there for five years. It was a co-op school. So you would go to school for two months and then they would place you into a job. So, you know, from there I worked at um, the Patriot Ledger, which was a, a newspaper. Then I went to work for a magazine. Um, then I went and started working in television and I liked television. So I kind of stayed there. I worked for CNBC. And then when I was at CNBC, I decided to go for my master's. I went to Columbia Journalism School, which uh, is in Manhattan. Um, and stayed there for two years. I was in a part-time program. So I was working freelance at CNN, uh, worked good, as a writer, Good Morning America. That was good. Um, so did a lot of freelance work there. And then when I graduated, I started looking for on-air jobs, um, took a, a writing job in Boston because I knew Boston and I figured better to have a job writing in, in a major city than kind of sitting around doing nothing while you wait for your on-air career to take off. So that's what I did. Was there like anybody who inspired you for journalism? People like 
Bob Woodruff, Carl Bernstein, anybody no, like that? No, I had a teacher who told me I couldn't write. And I took that as a challenge. So then I just started writing a lot more. Um, yeah, in hindsight, would I have gone into journalism again, knowing what I know today? I, I don't know. It was a fun career. It was definitely a career for um, um, younger people, I think, until you get to a certain level. Um, I don't know if you could really do it the way I did it back then, um, because you really need until you're not going to start making money now. Um, you know, if you want to have a family and things like that, you're probably not going to start making real money until you're in like a top 30 market. And, and that's but then again, nowadays, if you, if you have some talent, you can start in a market 70, you can start. And when I was leaving uh, the business too, you could actually start in a Syracuse. We had interns that got hired to be on Air Reporter. So that was a big change. You never had that uh, in, in the past. And then, you know, everybody wants to be on TV, right? So there's a constant stream of people who want to be on TV and reporting is a, is a good way to do that, I guess. So, well, but no, I, I did not have any, uh, wow, that's the guy I want to be. I just, I wanted to make a difference, right? I wanted to report on things. And that's kind of why I eventually went into politics. I got tired of reporting on people making a difference and thought, listen, I can do their job, you know, maybe better than they can. So why don't I go and run for the office and be the person that makes the change as opposed to being the person who reports on the person making the change, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Like, did you learn anything important through journalism school or anything that helped you out throughout life? I, um, I learned a lot actually in journalism school. I learned how to, um, I guess, be pithy, if that makes any sense. Um, how to organize your thoughts and present them to people so that they understand what you're talking about. Um, I mean, I used to report on all kinds of things. I, I used to report on like nuclear accelerators. I did a whole, I did a two part series on that. Um, medical and stock trades. I mean, I have a pretty wide breadth of knowledge now at this point in my life about kind of like how the world works. And the great thing about being a journalist, so I don't mean to be in a negative, I'm just saying that, you know, be prepared to not get paid very much money um, in the early days. And frankly, you don't even need, you know, look what you're doing, right? You're, you're out there, you're putting out a YouTube show. You don't actually need a station anymore to, yeah. to be a, a reporter. I mean, yeah. some of my favorite reporters are now on different um, websites where you go and you and you kind of pay just to read them. And I like that. I, you know, granted, I'd rather read them in the newspaper, but that's no longer an avenue for them. So I'm going to read them someplace else. Um, and it's the same idea with you. I mean, there's a lot of news out there that's not being covered. A lot of news in Lansing that's not being covered. And uh, if somebody were to, you know, figure out a way to monetize that. You know, it's kind of like the Lansing Star. That was a great, you know, local paper for 15 years. And Dan figured out a way to monetize that so he could make a living and, and do it. Um, and there's a lot of a lot of towns like that. Even Ithaca, right? Town of 30,000 people. You've got, you know, a major international university. You've got two other colleges. Um, you've got a lot going on there. And yeah, I mean, it's a, it's an open market really for television or for or for a YouTube show, for example. Who would, have, who would have thought you would go and be able to pick the new station you want off of YouTube? And that's where we are today. Have you, like working at those as a freelancer, did you ever meet anybody like Ron Burgundy? <laughs> anybody who just read the lines off? And that would have been great <laughs> if I met Ron Burgundy. But funny, uh, yeah, no, I mean, obviously you, you meet people. Um, 
you know, it's funny. I used to work with David Muir. David Muir is now the, the lead anchor, really, of the nation. He's the most watched news person uh, in the country. Does ABC um, News at six o'clock, right from Syracuse. He just bought a house, I think, in Skinny Atlas. Obviously, he doesn't live there during the week, but I think weekends or whatever. And yeah, I, I, I used to work um, with him up in Syracuse. And that was kind of where he started. And people really... He was great. I mean, he was probably the best on-air person I ever had met. And you know, it's neat. You meet people through the business who then go on to do things in much larger markets. So yeah, I, I mean, I definitely, um, you know, Lou Dobbs, he just got fired from uh, Fox. But I remember working for him when I was in New York City, you know, and that was headline news. And that was 25 years ago, right? Or uh, Stuart Varney, I used to work for him. And, and my friend, Matt, you know, he's a producer at Squawk Box. And he's married to the, the anchor at Squawk Pox. So I, I you know, know both of them. So yeah, I mean, you definitely meet interesting people, but the most interesting people you meet really are the famous people. It's the stories you go on. One of the best stories ever went on was um, they flew the Fuddy Duddy, which is a, B, um, a B-52 bomber into Elmira. And I was able to get on that plane and fly around on that plane as part of the news story. And it was neat because there was a local. That story in itself is neat, right? But the bomb sites for that plane in World War II were made right in Elmira. And I'm talking to people that were on the tarmac and they're going to go up on it. And I'm talking to this woman. And she's like, yeah, you know, my husband used to fly. He was a bombardier in this, in this aircraft in World War II. I go, wow, that's, that's really interesting. So I'm talking to her and she's like, and, you know, I used to work at the bomb site factory right here in Elmira. So that's my story, right? The woman making the bomb site for this plane, her husband is using that bomb site to fight World War II. I mean, that, that's a great story, right, from anybody. And those are the kind of stories that that's really why journalism is a great thing. You get to meet so many different people. And you meet them in good circumstances and really at their worst circumstances, right, whether it be a, a car accident or somebody fighting cancer or name it. You know, that, that's, you're going to meet a lot of different people in a lot of different situations. And you really get to learn the human condition. And that's kind of why we're all here, right, is to, to meet other people, to know them, I mean, what's the point of life if you, that's why I think this pandemic's been so difficult. It's really separated us as a people. And I think as soon as that, we can figure out how to get past that and get back to being one people, I think we'll be much better off. Well, you know, it can't be that bad. Uh, people had to deal with a 300 year pandemic a few hundred years ago. Uh, people complaining yeah. about one year of this. Imagine spending five, imagine like spending five generations of living it with it with no signs of progression. Oh, are you talking like the Black Plague? Yeah. Well, yeah, think about that. That wiped out a third of the population of the world. But then again, people were further apart. You didn't have, you know, um, you know, I think you, your village had to survive. If, if, you know, if your village wasn't surviving, you probably weren't surviving. So you definitely, I think, had to lean on people a little bit more than maybe you do today. I mean, we were already isolated, right, as people. If you went around, and this comes into politics, too. People say, oh, I... I really wish I was more connected to my community. I go, well, you should run for public office because, you know, how many people can honestly say, oh, I know my neighbor really well, or, oh, I know the guy down the street. A lot of people don't know their neighbors. You know, a lot of people, you know, you, you miss that bumping into people at church or bumping into people at the store with this pandemic. Whereas I don't know if you had that leniency during the Black Plague, you really were kind of more in it altogether because that really was wiping out whole towns and villages and things like that. So 
Yeah. Do you feel that American news these days is more like bias on both terms compared to British news? I do. Um, I do. And bias, I'm not sure. You know, people act like, well, that news is reported in a certain way, and that's the bias. And that's not really the main problem I have with it. Um, it goes back to more like story choice. Um, yeah, I'm looking at stories that are in the news, and I'm going, I can't understand why this is a news story. Like, I, I don't even understand why you're reporting on this. And yet, that's the news of the day, and that's the thing that gets the most clicks, right, from people, because they go, wow, that's interesting. Like, Army Hammer, I don't even know who that is. And yet he's being accused of like cannibalism or something. And I'm like, pardon? Well, I don't really understand what you're talking about. And now they're going into, well, this person had a bruise back in such and such a year. And I'm like, wow, this is all very complicated news about some, some person I've never even heard of. Where it's like when you read, you know, oh, so-and-so broke up. And I'm like, I don't know either one of those people. And I'm not really understanding their breakup. They were boyfriend, girlfriend? like. Why is that in my news? I don't understand. And yet, you know, you read about things like, like if you were to say, well, Germany's COVID-19 problem is, is pretty severe, people would go, what do you mean? COVID, they're doing great with COVID. I'm like, no, actually, their situation is almost as bad as America's. And people are, they, they're blindsided by that news. And I think that's why people do get blindsided, because I don't think the news really reports kind of what's going on almost in the world sometimes. People were shocked to that, uh, you know, President Trump won in 2016. And it's like, you know, if you had been listening to the news, yeah, I guess that would be shocking because everybody thought he was going to lose, right? But if you were listening to, if, if the news reporters had gone out and really talked to some of these states, maybe they would have had a better handle on what was going on and, and been like, yeah, you know, no, we're pretty sure. This is gonna be a really close race, but people were like, oh my God, I can't believe what happened. So it's not really Mike Sigler saying, well, the news is biased. I don't even think bias might be the right word. I, I just think they're not doing the job. It seems like they've checked out. I don't really know why. There are some stories out there that are just so interesting. I'm like, how did you not cover this? And then they say, well, that was a regional story or, oh, that was just a city story. I go, really? Because it's really interesting. <laughs> I was a state senator, I always use this example. There was a state senator out in California in a place that I've never, I've probably been there, but I don't know much about the area. And he was just a state senator. So, you know, like our state senators, you know, not federal, state level, but he was running guns out of his office, you know, literally buying guns in like Mexico, running them and selling them out of his office. And I'm like, CNN, they said, oh no, that was a regional story. I'm like, really? Because that's really interesting. <laughs> like, I don't know. I would pay attention to that story. And how deep does that come? Whatever happened to that story? These are all questions I have. Yeah, so. That become that become viral these days. You know, somebody just right? like that on their phone. You know, they probably get a few million views. Right. Do, do you think that social media should be considered news agencies? Since basically anybody can upload anything and share stuff. Uh, but I don't think it could be accurate since like anybody can give their own interpretation of the news. And well, I think there's two things you've got to remember, right, on social media. If you read something that fits too closely with your worldview, you might want to double check that, right? Like, I read something the other day, and I'm like, yeah, that guy's right. And I'm like, well, wait a minute. And then I read, and I'm like, oh, yeah, that story's false. Because it fit too closely with what I believe. So I'm like, yeah, that's probably not right. And I think more people should do that, because then they, they cross-post it, or they, um, you know, 
like Andrea Mitchell the other day called out Tom Cruise or not Tom Cruise, uh, Ted Cruz. I said, well, Ted Cruz, he misused this quote. He said it was Shakespeare and it wasn't, it was Faulkner. And I'm like, well, I don't know, but that's the kind of thing I would think you, Ted Cruz is a pretty smart guy. I would want to double check that before I tweeted, but nope, she tweeted it out. And then this other reporter, you know, oh, you go. Yeah, you're right. You called him out. And it's like, no, he was right <laughs> all along. But by the time that circles around, it's hit 36,000 people retweeting it. And why is Twitter even a thing? I don't even understand why that's so popular. It's not a great platform, but, but it is. So now I think what social media has to do is it has to decide, right? Are we the public square, which is what they claim to be? If you're the public square, yeah, then there's really not much that you should not be allowed to say. Uh, on on those social media platforms, right? Buyer beware. If you read a story and you're like, yeah, that that doesn't actually sound right, and usually it's you know about something that's not all that important to your life anyway. But fine, maybe it doesn't comport to what you think or whatever. Then yeah, look it up in a second. Double source it. I mean, even when I was a reporter, if you heard, that's the other thing that's happened with journalists. And now they report anonymous sources. That's fine, but they don't even double source it. You used to do that. Like, okay, I heard this. Now I'm going to go find somebody else who says the same thing so that I'm not reporting garbage. Yeah, now people want to be first so bad that they'll throw out the garbage and later maybe print a retraction. But by that point, that's the narrative. That's what's believed. And that, or, that's where I think journalism has really fallen down is there's no, um, there's no accountability when somebody gets anything wrong. Like, I don't know, if somebody told me something and I reported on it, and I find out later that person was lying to me, I would out that person. I would say, this person told me this. They lied to me. And that's why this story is incorrect. But they don't do that. They, they want to protect that person. And I don't know why, if somebody's feeding you, you know, a line, why, why protect that person? They're not a good source. They're not helpful to you as a journalist at all. Maybe they're helpful to you as a, from a personal relations standpoint, but I remember going to Columbia Journalism School. One of the first things the dean said at that point was, yeah, you're not going to have a lot of friends. I mean, because everybody is a potential story. And frankly, in government, you're not going to really have any friends because you're trying to hold those people accountable. So be careful of who your friendships are because you may have to burn those friendships and that's going to be painful and be, be aware of that. So, um, yeah, I don't think journalists maybe do that anymore. It doesn't seem like that. Yeah, yeah, that's quite interesting. Bill, did anybody inspire you for politics or was there any figures you know of that wanted you to like break out into politics at all? Uh, my family was not terribly, my, my parents weren't, my sister was pretty political, my brother's not. Um, no, I mean, it's always been an interest. I mean, I was on student council when I was in high school and uh, you know, that's, the thing I tell people now, it's like colleges, right? I was talking to people in colleges, um, in a college the other day, up at Cornell, and they were like, yeah, you know, we want to run for student council at Cornell and stuff. And I said, be frank with you, you're 18. You can run for town board right now. Why not do that? I mean, not what, why not? Why don't you actually run for a government position where you're going to have, you're going to represent, like Lansing, I represent 7,500 people. I mean, run for that and, you know, See if you can win. I mean, 
then you'll get really good on the ground experience of how to run a campaign. Um, what are the important issues to your town? I mean, that's the thing in Lansing. I think I do a pretty decent job with that is, you know, I go around and I talk to people and people tell me this is my main concern. Like right now I get a lot of um, from Lansingville Road. They, they have a real traffic problem there. There are a lot of trucks running up and down that road. And the, the neighbors there have a, an issue with it. And I've, I've talked to one of the main people there, told him kind of what he has to do. He wrote a letter today, which I responded to already, but it's nice. He's bringing in other people now to, to kind of fight the good fight. So what got me into politics? I, I think, I don't know if it was a person or more of an issue. It was, you know, 9-11. I, I, the first uh, office I ran for was state assembly, and that was in 2002. 9-11 had just happened. And, you know, that affected me like it did, I think, everybody else. And, and I thought, you know, I would rather be in a position where I can actually affect change in people's lives. Um, if people have a problem, I'd like them to be able to come to me and I'll be able to do something for them as opposed to just reporting it and, and saying, oh, here, so-and-so, you know, you're, you're the assembly person, you take care of it. I just, I got tired of kind of telling other people to take care of it. I wanted to be the one to take care of it. So it wasn't so much a person as, 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 a, as a, a period in time, I think. So your uncle was an Annie? He was, yeah, my, my uncle Tom. Tom. My Uncle Tom, uh, he was a Broadway actor and he was uh, in, a, in a, so in Broadway, you have what's on Broadway, but then you also, you have an off-Broadway production that kind of travels around and that's, he was Rooster in that. And um, yeah, my Uncle Tom, he was the um, national champion uh, in junior ballroom dancing. So he was the junior champion. Um, like the teen champion, I guess it would be called. But uh, yeah, he was a good ballroom dancer, um, good actor, I thought. I used to go to his shows, like went to Connecticut with my mom and went to Pennsylvania. Because again, the show would move. And um, yeah, it was, it was Rooster. It was good to go and see him um, to do that. So um, interesting guy. Uh, you know, it's funny when people say they're an actor because they're always something else too, right? I'm an actor and I wait tables over here. And, he was a ballroom dancer, we teach ballroom dancing, but also, um, you know, lived, lived a pretty great lifestyle for, you know, he passed away in 1985. Um, interesting time in our, in our country's history because, you know, a lot of technological advances. He had gone on the Queen Mary, you know, over to Great Britain, flew back on the Concorde, always thought that was very cool and just, but it kind of lived just down the street from the Dakota where John Lennon used to live and, and actually was, was killed. And my, my uncle was just down the street from when that happened. And um, I remember going in for Thanksgiving into the city, had dinner at his place and looked at this enormous apartment. And that's where I finally found out about rent control. <laughs> so I said, how are you affording this? And he's like, oh, well, you see that lamp? I said, yeah, I see the lamp. So the owner of the place lives out in California. It's a rent-controlled building. And that lamp is why this place is, you know, it's priced at some crazy low amount of money. And I said, and that's legal. He's like, yeah, oddly enough. And that's, so if you ever hear people against rent control, that's why they're against it. Because you're getting charged nothing for this apartment. So and that's How, worth How was he able to get the role in audition? You know, it's the same thing in television. Uh, you audition a lot and I'm gonna it's like anything it's, it's like sales right like I'm in sales now the key to sales is you put out as many as many leads as humanly possible 
um, and then follow up on those leads and take care of those leads too. Um, you know, if you're fishing and you've put a worm on the hook and you leave it in the water, you got to pull up the hook every once in a while to see if the worm is still on, right? So it's the same idea with leads. You got to be careful with them and take care of them. And it's the same thing, I think, with, with my Uncle Tom was he auditioned a lot. Um, so that's why a waiting job is good. It's not usually during when you're auditioning and, and you can usually work schedules out and things like that. Not a nine to five job. Um, and then you just, you go audition as much as you can. And, and you really, you do your research on what the role is about. You do your research on what maybe that particular director is looking for and, and, and try to fit that with what they're, what they're looking for. And again, what, and you can't take failure and internalize it too much um, because you're gonna fail a lot. You're gonna, you're gonna learn a lot about rejection. Um, you're gonna put like, if you wanted to go be a journalist, you're gonna put out maybe, you know, a hundred tapes and you may not hear anything on any of them. And then you're gonna put out another hundred tapes and maybe you'll hear from one. And that's the kind of rejection you just have to be prepared for, you know, particularly in something that's so subjective like that, where you may not have the right eye color. Your hair, you may be five years too old and you're not even five years too old for the role, but the person you're gonna be acting, uh, the other lead and might be, you know, five years younger, and it's just it doesn't. It's not a good match, you know. And that's you've got to not internalize that. They're they're looking for something, and it really doesn't have maybe a lot to do with, with you, as opposed to what this idea they have in mind for, right? So that's how he got the role. Was he just literally went out there every day, and auditioned, and he didn't internalize it, and he didn't take it personally, and. Once you're in a show, you really want to nurse those relationships too with your co-stars and the people running the, the camera and, and the, the script writer. And you want to make it so you're easy to get along with, really, and easy to work with and be kind to people. Um, you know, and that's a life lesson, not just a how do you get roles lesson. If you're kind to people, people generally respond to that and will be kind to you. And that way, if there's a role coming up, and they think, wow, Tom would be perfect for that role. I'm going to call him and tell him that, that he's up for that role. And I may even mention him to the director if they already have the role. And that's how things like that work, right? Is you want to be known as somebody who's, who's affable and, and good to work with. And um, it makes make people's lives easier as opposed to making everybody's life harder, right? That's the key to politics too, right? If you have a problem and I slam the door in your face, I'm probably not going to stay elected very long. So same idea. And that's how we got the role was he just tried out and kept trying out. And eventually somebody saw something in him and said, yep, you're the guy. How long are you have the role for? Do you have it for a short time or a long time? It was a couple of years. The show went out on the road. So he would go city to city and just be on the road. So yeah, a couple of years. Any crazy trips or anything crazy that happened at any of the locations? Um, no, I don't think anything too crazy, but he, um, uh, like I said, world traveler, like just interesting to fly on the Concorde. I mean, you're flying, you know, Mach 1 uh, on, a, on a commercial jet that no longer flies. And, you know, I was down in uh, DC, we went to the Aerospace Museum and there they have a Concorde. And you're like, wow, yeah, this was a big deal back in the day. And it really was. I mean, the Concorde was a status symbol of the 80s. And uh, so stuff like that. But yeah, I mean, obviously, and, and he was, um, 
you know, the time back then, my, my uncle Tom, he was, um, so he was a gay man uh, out, not to my family until much later. My mother knew much sooner than I knew, obviously, but she eventually told me. And he, um, you know, as a gay man in New York City, 1980s, um, the big concern then was AIDS. Nobody knew what AIDS was um, back then. It was this virus, people were getting sick. And sure enough, I mean, my uncle eventually did get sick. He, he died of pneumonia, but he had, um, had become infected with AIDS. And I remember at the time, there really still not a lot of information on that in 1985. I remember going to visit him in the hospital and my mother saying, you know, listen, don't, um, you know, you can hug him, that's fine. But if something were to happen, like if his needle were to come out of his arm, he's on an IV, if his IV comes out, you know, the nurse has to take care of that. I mean, that's not something we, we can clean up or touch or anything like that. So, because again, they didn't know much about it, but we knew it was okay to hug people and things like that, but it didn't go much further past that knowledge. Certainly not what we know today. And it really, back in 85, it was a, it was a death sentence. It was not a, um, we're gonna put you on certain medications and you're gonna recover from this. You, you basically didn't have an immune system. And that's why pneumonia, if it crept in, that, that's what killed you, so. Um, yeah, just a difficult time, but certainly, you know, and it's interesting when you think about people you lose in, in that way. I, I eventually went to Columbia, as I mentioned, and whenever I would drive in to, to go to Columbia, and I'm like, wow, I really miss my Uncle Tom, because this would be such, he would be, A, very proud of me going to Columbia. I would also have been um, blocks from his house, you know, <laughs> not, not very far, and it would have been great, you know, if he had you know, been st still around that I would go to New York City and I could go to class and I could go visit him and we could go to dinner and a show. And because he really was one of one of those uncles who gave, he was kind. And um, and I missed that in that. I really felt a great loss from, from his, his passing. Yeah, that's too bad. It's too bad there's a heavy, heavy stereotype associated with uh these days people now know way more and they realize it's just some random tourists from africa who got bitten by monkeys who brought it to the united states yeah then and it's interesting they're still doing research on on the origins of uh, of aids and, how and then they, basically you know. it got spread due to all the crazy nightclubs which they use needles well you know it was more you know needles obviously but uh, unprotected sex they just yeah, literally in the beginning didn't know how it was, was moving through populations. And um, that's why just it hit the, the gay community so hard uh, in the beginning. Um, and just really, it was a scary time. I mean, people did not know how it was being spread. And, um, you know, that, that was the, the biggest problem with it. And it um, was just, imagine that living in a community where your friends are, are all dying and you, and you literally don't know what's, you know, it's something's causing it. You know, it's a virus, but you don't know how to to deal with it, of, of what's going to be done to kind of stop it. So. Like, are, are you are you you a big sports guy? And um, I don't know. I, I like random sports. I guess being in college, I rode crew for Northeastern. That was great. And I miss it, and I, I just keep meaning to go back to it. And I just haven't yet. So uh, maybe this spring that'll be something I go back to. Um, but I, it's a great sport. If anybody ever wanted to get into something, my crew is great. Teamwork, all that kind of thing. And it's a beautiful sport too. Um, but no, I like football. I love, you know, I like baseball. Um, didn't like the shortened seasons, So it kind of took a year off, but we like the Yankees in this household. We like to go watch uh, Yankees games when we can. 
It's the only reason I have direct TV is to watch Yankees baseball and football. You know, some of the stories I like, I like football more um, than I do today, but you know, I watched the Super Bowl a little bit. I like Tom Brady, because I think he's an interesting uh, story um, that, you know, you go and from winning you know, six rings and you go to this brand new team and in a year, boom, you're winning the Super Bowl again. That's, that's an amazing story. So uh, I think that's kind of the thing I like about sports is sometimes when people overcome something, um, and granted, he didn't really overcome so maybe he has great talent, obviously, he's the GOAT, right? But um, you read other stories about people overcoming um, tragedy or overcoming, um, set, you know, really get set back in, their, in what they want to do, and they overcome it. And I think that's the brilliance of sports, you know? I don't think there's anybody that hasn't watched, you know, Miracle on Ice and went, wow, what, what a time that was to win that game against the Russians, the best team in the country at, a, at the height of the Cold War. I mean, it's, you've got all the elements there flowing together, right? So, um, and I think that's the, the key to sports. And it doesn't really matter what sport, I think that's, that's the beauty of it. Were you shocked when Magic Johnson got AIDS and stuff? Like, were you much of a basketball person back then? Um, I wasn't, but I mean, obviously, Magic Johnson, he was one of the biggest names in sports back then. And yeah, I mean, that was shocking. It was shocking because he was one of the first really high, such a well-known name. And for him to, and that took a lot of bravery on his part to frankly come out and say, yeah, this is what it is. It's not, he didn't make it into something else. He said, no, this is what it is, you know, and heterosexual male, not you know, outside of the group that traditionally was thought to be coming down with this disease. So um, I think that really was a sea, ch like a sea change in, in the way people kind of looked at, at the disease. Because um, if Magic Johnson could get it, they go, well, yeah, I mean, that's really anybody can get it. And, you know, and he explained why he got it, and, you know, unprotected, I think, sex. And I think that was what he, what it was. And, and he went, it not, all the way and describe everything in detail, obviously, but made it clear that, yeah, this was something that I'm gonna have to deal with the rest of it. And still, you know, he dealt with it. You know, it's amazing where drugs are today, right? For, for somebody to survive like that. Um, whereas, you know, 10 years before that, that probably would not have happened. Um, so yeah, I think that was a, a sea change in the way people looked at the disease. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. Now these days, one guy actually got cured medicine to like control it way easier. It's 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 so shocking, and so interesting. Yeah, well, it's interesting. I mean, it, yeah, the cure thing. You would think that if that, I know they're still studying that what that what happened there. So I'm not going to go. I don't know that much about that. But again, it's like, you know, double check all the news because that seems shocking. And that seems like that would be a world revelation because the AIDS virus, the reason that it's um, so dangerous is it mutates so quickly. And it's the same, it's similar in that way to like herpes, right? Is herpes very, you can't cure it, you can't have it for life. So um, that's where, you know, medical fields, they look at diseases like that and say, okay, if we can beat this disease and we can build, it has um, implications for other diseases. So that's why you, we are making advances towards things like cancer and, and other diseases, because we're doing research on all these, these different kind of um, diseases and, and how they affect the body. And I, that is, um, it's amazing what we do to think, 
you know, what, 150, when my house was built, my house was built in 1867. To think, you get cut on the arm, that's a problem. Like, you didn't have penicillin. You know, until, until penicillin happened, people were just dying of, of just nothing, really. Get a common cold, that was a problem. Anything you got was a problem. And to think now, that, that's not even anything. You, know, you get a cut, all right, we know exactly what to do about that. Whereas, you know, 150 years ago, that's the kind of advances we've made in such a short period of time. Yeah. It is quite incredible. Well, anyway, thanks for talking. It was really fun having you on the show and no talking about your, your wild pilot career and your <laughs> journalism. Well, anyway, just thanks for talking. No problem. You know, next time we'll talk about my my career as an ice cream man when I was in high school. That was a